We continue our series in God's priceless promises. Today we're going to be in John chapter 14. How do you react to bad news? You've gotten a phone call, you've gotten a letter, you've gotten something that has said something terrible has happened. And for some of you, you stuff it inside and you go on with life as if nothing has happened. Well, that's called denial. And you know what? That's a sick way of dealing with life. But on the other extreme, some of you, when you get bad news, you just fall apart. You wail and you moan and you share with everyone, this has happened, man. And all your friends around you pick up the pieces and become an insulator for you because you're not handling life very well at all. Those are the two extremes. How do you handle, how do you react to bad news? I think for most of us, we take it in, we let it eat our lunch, we internalize the pain and the stress, we'll share it with others, but we end up developing heart trouble. We kind of get sick. We become emotionally devastated. We have tons of questions to ask and we have no one to ask them to. But in those moments, most of us turn to friends, family, our support team, and we say, help me process this. This is hard. And those friends, if they're truly friends, will sit with you and will be with you through those hard times. But what happens when you often, in those moments, lose those friends as well? When you receive the bad news and the friends seem to dissipate and you are left there alone, struggling with hard news. How do you deal with that? It's like a little child being dropped off in a new situation. They're brought to the nursery or to the toddler's room for the first time and mom and dad are standing at the door and the little one is looking over her shoulder or his shoulder saying, mom and dad, you're going to stay right there, right? Right at the door while I'm in this room. And all of a sudden they get involved in playing and the next thing she looks back and the doorway where mom and dad were standing is now empty. Oh, they call that separation anxiety. And the child, depending on their sense of security, begin to wail. Mommy! I didn't do that loud because I'm, I'm mic'd this morning. But you know those wails of, where is my support system? What do we do? When the thought of our loved ones being apart from us. Well, what I've described this morning is what has happened now to the disciples. They've walked with Jesus for three, three and a half years now. And they're now in the upper room. The last evening before all hell breaks loose, literally. And Jesus says to them, oh, by the way, 
I'm leaving you. What? They're struggling to understand what's going on. And Jesus has been preparing them for a hard time, and he says, now I'm going to check out, and you're going to have to handle this on your own. The question in chapter 14 is, why did Jesus have to leave? It's the question foremost on their minds. Why does he have to leave now? They sense a loss of support. And as we look at this passage this morning, John 14, page 1146, there in the Pew Bible, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. And as we look at this passage, something that I never saw before is that would you notice that in 14 verses, the word Father is mentioned 13 times in 14 verses. And you would think, well, the focus is on Jesus. The focus is on the Father. So what's the background? They're in the upper room. They're gathered together. They're going to celebrate an institution of the Lord's Supper. But this is just hours before his betrayal, his trials, his crucifixion, and his death. And he's already told them in chapter 13 of John that there's a traitor in their midst. I remember years ago when we did the Living Last Supper, the the phrase that caught me unawares was the phrase, is it I? And every disciple were asking themselves, were they the traitor? That would shake anyone up. He tells them in chapter 13 that Peter is going to deny Jesus Christ. And Peter says, I got a death for you. Their leader, their human leader, Peter, is now rattled. And Jesus also then tells them he's going to die and he's going to leave them. He says, I'm going away. And their hearts are now agitated anxious and hurting and that is the context for what we're going to start seeing in chapter 14 verse 1. So turn there if you would with me and we're going to look at the first six verses. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, Would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we don't know. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the first six verses, Jesus is going to tell them he is going to prepare a place for them. And in these simple six verses, he's going to give them three cures for spiritual heart trouble. Number one, have faith or trust. Number two, focus on the Father's house. Number three, his future coming is 
assured. Let's look at each one of those. Number one, trust or have faith. Verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. Let it not be agitated. Let it not be filled with anxiety. You believe in God, believe also in me. Trust Jesus, he says. Matter of fact, in the tense of the verb, he says, keep on trusting him. Trust him now. Trust Jesus with your future. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what's causing your heart to be sick spiritually. I don't know the struggles that you're going through. But one of the cures that you can allow Jesus to work in your life is to trust him, to trust him more to trust him fully, to trust him with your future, and trust him with your present. Does he understand you, yes or no? Yes. He understands you. He wants the best for you. So he says to his disciples, and he says to us, trust me. In verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. Now, The songs that we sang this morning focused on the King James Version, mansions. Mansions, big, huge, Pleasant Valley estates. Amen? Oh, you understand. That's not what the real meaning of the passage is. In my Father's house are many rooms. That's a better translation. Places for you to abode in. And Jesus says, if it were not so, if this was not true, I would tell you. But I'm going to tell you instead, I am going to prepare a place for you. This is what I'm going to do for you. A prepared place for a prepared people. So Jesus' purpose for leaving was to secure our eternal future place of living. Verse 3, and if I go, as sad as that is, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Do you believe that what he is saying here is that his return is as assured as his departure? We love going on vacation. I think most of us do. And we love seeing exotic sites and going to favorite places. But you know what the fun of vacation truly is, in my opinion? It's being with the ones you love. You could be in a dump. But if you were with people you haven't seen for 10 years and loved dearly, you'd say, oh, let's not worry about the surroundings. Let's just reconnect. The beauty of this promise found in verse 3 is not the palatial mansions that we envision there in heaven for us. Here's what Jesus is saying to us. What's going to make it so special? We're going to be with Jesus. Face to face the lover of our souls. He is going to bring us and we're going to be in his presence. You know, streets of gold are great, but without Jesus there, it would just be a place. 
but heaven's going to be a place where Jesus is with us. And that's the promise. That's the exciting thing. He's preparing that place for us. And he makes a statement in verse 4, you, you know the way to where I am going? Doesn't Jesus have this uncanny ability to ask us questions that invites us to declare our ignorance? Doesn't he? And he asks the disciples, they don't know how to get there. And he then can give them the truth. He baits them on for further discussion. We're going to be with Jesus in the Father's house in heaven. And so as I studied this passage for today, because we're looking at the promises of the scriptures, the first promise, because I found there were three promises in this passage this morning, the first promise I have set aside in your message overflow. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That's a great promise, but the next piece, and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I'm going to be with him. He then makes this statement in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A very narrow gospel. If you want to obtain salvation, Jesus is the path to heaven and there's no other means. And so if you are here this morning and you're trusting someone else beside Jesus, you're trusting your great positive life, the good things you do, the way you treat other people, your religiosity, your giving of yourself, in your finances to help other people. That will not take you to heaven. There's only one that will. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the way. The only way. He embodies truth. He brings life eternal. I pray this morning, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that you would do that this morning. Because heaven is a real place. And Jesus wants to spend eternity with you as part of his family. But apart from saving faith, that's not possible. He, he's saying to his children, his disciples, there, there's room in heaven for you, and I'm going to take you and bring you one day to be with me. When we had children that were in our home, I remember bringing in a sitter and trying to prepare our children for that sitter to come. And we're going to go out for dinner and we'll be back. We're going to be gone a couple hours and the child doesn't understand that because it seems like eternity. And we'd say over and over and over again, we're coming back, we're coming back. And we would walk out the door, the sitter would be there, and the wailing sometimes would begin. And mom, I think more than dad, would say, maybe we should go back in. Maybe we should comfort them one more time. And I'll say, oh dear, no. Sometimes we did go back in. New sitter, we're not going to put them through those paces. 
But we would leave. And when we came back, I, I remember Barb saying this distinctly. We're home. There was joy. And she would say, I told you I was coming back. I told you we would be back later in the evening. Jesus is saying to us, I've left, but I'm coming back. And he's promised that. And he's going to take us to heaven to be with him forever. What a promise. Separation anxiety is gone. Verses 7 through 11. Why did Jesus leave? Because he wished to reveal the Father to them. Verses 7 through 11. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. See, Jesus shifts his questions from the future to the present. And in verse 8, Philip's question, it shows us, because we're a lot like Philip, it's much easier to ask for more proof to act on what we already know. See, we, like Philip, expect God to satisfy our conditions before we trust him. Hit these benchmarks, Lord. Do this and then I'll have more trust. Is God trustworthy, yes or no? How much? How much more does he have to show you before you say, Father, my life is yours. I trust you with my future and I trust you with my present. Or do we sometimes say, well, you know, if you heal me, if you provide this for me, if that check will just show up at the right time, then my trust in you will be satisfied. No. No. See, we want assurance. We want intimacy with God. We want deeper knowledge. But Jesus says, trust me. In verse 9, it has to be one of the most staggering claims that one of the most profound assertions in the entire New Testament. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is revealing the Father to them in the person of Jesus Christ. That speaks of the closeness of their union. And he says in verse 11, Believe in me, but the tense of the verb says, keep on believing in me. I and the Father are one. And what you find out in this passage is that 
The Father's reflection is the very person of Jesus himself. In verses 12 through 14, Jesus includes two promises. And one of them I did not fully appreciate. Verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I think verse 12 is one of the most interesting verses in the whole book of John. To fill in your blank, this this promise is to grant them. Why is he leaving? To grant them the special privilege of prayer. And he says in verse 12, greater works will accompany those who believe. To those who believe. To those who have faith. To those who trust Now think about what that says. Now did Jesus do great miracles, yes or no? Yes. And yet, this is Jesus' words to us. We will do the works that he does, and greater works than these will he do, those who believe in him, because I am going to the Father. That means we, as his followers, will do greater works than Jesus. How is that possible? Well, as I studied, I realized that Jesus, true God and true man, limited himself in time and space. Jesus was here for three and a half years. Jesus' entire ministry was limited during those three and a half years to Palestine only. Now, nowhere in the passage does it say we're going to do more spectacular things than him. It doesn't say that. They're not greater in kind, but they're greater in extent, greater in outreach due to the Holy Spirit, greater in impact. Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and he sees 3,000 get converted in one day. Did Jesus ever do that? Not that I read in the Gospels. Matter of fact, he was met with skepticism. Some believed, many didn't, and they plotted against his own life. Peter sees 3,000. And it says there, and daily was added to the church. People today... We think about preachers who are on television who reach their ministry around the world on a Sunday morning. Did Jesus ever do that? No. And the only way this was possible was for him to leave so the Holy Spirit could come back and empower his church. This promise is for us. The second promise, John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, and that is the condition, belief, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. 
The third promise, the second in this little passage here, is that prayer will be answered. Verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What I did not fully understand as I studied, this is a new concept in the Scriptures. To ask in the name of Jesus Christ, to pray in his name. It's not a magical formula, but it is in accordance and consistence with his character. What Jesus does there, he says, I am now giving you authority to come to the throne room of grace and to ask for something in my name. That's never been, never found in the Old Testament. That would be like there would be times when one of our children would come to me and say, Mommy says, and I need something to drink, or Mommy says, I can have some ice cream. Well, that child came under the authority of my wife to ask for something I would not normally give them, but in the authority of her name... I did it. I would just do it. Jesus in this passage for the first time in the New Testament says, you who believe in me, I now confer upon you the authority to come to the Father and ask for something that you might need. Now, some look at this passage and they see a blank check. It's not a blank check. What do I mean by that? One, I have to believe. Two, I have to ask. Three, I have to ask in a way that will glorify the Father. And I have to be honest, most of the things that I end up asking for are for my glory and yours. Amen? We want our way. We want us to be taken care of. Yes, we might say, God, may you be glorified this in Jesus' name. Now please give it over to me because I want it now. That's not what it says. When I align with God's will, when I understand that this would bring glory to the Father in heaven, when I come in the authority of the risen Savior's name and I'm in line with his character and I'll say, Father, I need this. Would you please provide? The Father delights in answering that request. That's new. I I don't think we fully understand the power that we have to beseech the throne of grace and ask for things that would bring God glory. It's not a promise that we'll receive a yes. One author said, and I love this, God knows us individually, but responds to us in community. Now, what does that mean? The farmers in our area are praying for dryness. Amen? Mark, dryness. Let's get get things dried out. And yet I know they wanted rain the week before the John Deere Classic to green everything up. Now, who gets answered? They both may have faith. God understands us individually. 
but he answers in community. He knows what's best for our area. What a promise. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, and if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. See, what is the Father's glory? Faith exercised. What does this mean for us? Four things. Number one, God is trustworthy. No one else deserves our trust. So the question this morning is, will you trust him in the midst of your confusion? Would you trust him in the midst of your heart troubles? He has promised to see you through every situation. Can you count on him? Yes or no? Yes. Trust him. Number two, our long-term future is secure. We will one day be with Jesus, the lover of our souls. He's preparing for us a place for wandering pilgrims to finally dwell at peace with God and with Jesus. Are you looking forward to that? Have you made provisions for that? Have you rested in that fact that this is just, sometimes this world is so messed up? But there will come a day that we will be in heaven with him. Number three, would you trust God that he desires to use your life to do great things for the kingdom? See, I think it's often our disbelief It's often our excuses and say, God, you can't use me to reach that person. You can't use me to make a change in this situation. You, oh, you wouldn't want to use me to do that. And that's exactly what God wants to use. Use you. He's made the need known to you. So this morning, would you say, okay, God, I'm going to stop making excuses And when you put something on my heart, and I know it's from you, would you launch me out by faith? He loves to answer that kind of question. Number four, do you fully understand and do you fully utilize the authority that Jesus has given you to pray? To pray for others? To pray for yourself? To pray for this church? to pray for our community, for our country, and our world. Do you say, okay, I now can walk in boldly into the throne room of grace and I can ask God for what the needs are? Or that's that's pastor's job to pray. That's the prayer team's job to pray, amen? Amen. Let them do it. Jesus gives us all this authority, those who have faith in him. Can I suggest this morning that you need to grab one or more of these promises by faith and put them into practice? Would you let God use you to affect those around you? When those times get tough, when your heart is troubled, would you say, Father, I trust you. 
I trust you. I don't understand. I'm not getting answers to my questions. I don't know what you're doing, but I trust you and no one else. Let's pray.